We have Nathan Rennie of Concordia St. Paul back on this week to, to continue discussing Wilderson's Afro-pessimism and what happens when ideas from the Academy hit the streets. This is Matthew Garnett. Welcome to In Layman's Terms. you liberate words from things, then you find their meaning, their bedrock meaning, and what it is not. And I would argue, we have argued, that the word human has not been interrogated in this way, and that its bedrock opposite is the slave, that the slave, the past at least 1,300 years, is quintessentially black. Like I said, this is part two of uh, my interview with Nathan Rennie, again, one of our favorite guests to have on here. He and I just uh, kind of have the chemistry, kind of almost <laughs> wish he, we, he, we could just turn in layman's terms into the, the Nathan and Matt show type of situation. Uh, it's just wonderful to have him on and really appreciate uh, much appreciation to, to Nathan for taking the time on these issues. He bring, brings a lot of this stuff to me, and then I'm like, okay, now you got to come on the podcast. And he graciously agrees. Uh, and so we're going to continue. Uh, you're going to continue to hear the interview we had uh, this time. And we're gonna, actually going to have probably a little bonus feature on our next podcast. I've uh, got a little bit of that interview left over. I don't want to leave any of it out. It was all fantastic. So you'll probably catch uh, uh, a little of the of the end of that ne- even next time. So if you've enjoyed the, the previous two, um, hopefully it's been helpful to you folks. I know this stuff seems like it's in the weeds. It doesn't really matter that this is just stuff they're discussing in academia, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's just not the case. Uh, you know, w- the ideas they discuss in college in the 90s, I mean, everybody's talking about this. I, you know, I don't know why this is such a big surprise. You teach stuff kids in the 90s, and then, it, then you expect not expect for it not to infiltrate the culture. Well, that's just not going to happen. It's, it's going to infiltrate the culture, and it has infiltrated the culture. And in this interview with Wilderson on his book, Afro-Pessimism, we see exactly what the aims are. I, this is no secret with him. This, you know, he's not hiding the ball here. Uh, this seems to be a thing with a lot of folks with this type of agenda, but it's not with him. And so we, uh, we did with this interview. But before we get to all that, let me, as always, remind you uh, that we need to get going on the Men of Steel uh, Truck Driving School for Former Inmates Project. We've had some of you donate. I can't even call it several yet. I know we're coming around to the silly season here. Uh, we're coming around to Advent, Christmas. You know, we'll all be traveling. Money might be tight. Might be something you need to wait on until January. I understand that. But uh, but I want you to get it on your mind at least. Uh, we, you know, we don't have to raise that much money here. We just need maybe 10 of you to donate 100 bucks or so. And that's it. And then, then this will be over and you don't have to listen, <laughs> listen to me talk about it anymore. I can go hire uh, my guy to get us a grant to get this going. And we could get the the capital to get it going, but um, you know, but I would would like you to be a part of it. I would like I would invite you to be a part of it. We've got a donor that's going to match uh, whatever we're able to raise here. So I'd invite you to go to laymanstermsradio.org. Right there on the landing page is a place where you can donate uh, via pay uh, via uh, our GoFundMe uh, to the Men of Steel uh, Truck Driving School. So please 
go do that. Um, also, Kenya Well Project stuff there is is up as well. That's a done deal. Uh, we were, you know, uh, a, a significant contributor to that. The, the folks uh, at, at Kibo Soap Academy sent me a, a nice little card, sent us a nice little card thanking us for for our involvement, and um, we should uh, uh, thank thank and praise God that we were able to be a part of that in a, in a significant way. We were able to put the funds over over the top. Um, we weren't obviously the biggest donor. One of the biggest donors gave a big one-time donation. We were able to get it done, which was great. I'm um, really happy about that. And we're just waiting for the well to go in. Uh, please do continue to go to laymanstermsradio.com for updates. I definitely will be um, you know, uh, shouting it from the hilltops when the, when the well is installed there, um, that will be a great accomplishment. It'll be such a blessing to those children trying to learn Holy scripture, uh, there at Kibos Hope Academy. And, uh, we were just happy to be a part of that. Okay. So as promised, here's the second installment of my interview with Nathan Rennie of Concordia Theological, uh, Concordia, uh, St. Paul on, uh, Wilderson's Afro-pessimism. Here we go. But the thing is, is that biblically speaking, um, and even many people throughout world history have believed this as well, um, there is hierarchy. And there are kind of permanent hierarchies, for example, parents and children, right? I mean, you know, does Wilderson want to throw out that? Because Marx kind of did almost, it seems like. He talked about the problems uh, within the nuclear family or just the family, father, son, child. That's kind of where Marxists are going with that, right? Mm -hmm. So we have permanent hierarchies. And then we also have hierarchies that exist that are not necessarily permanent, but are nevertheless to be respected too. And authority is to be respected. And here's, so I mean, like when he says that you have to exist or like the, the non-social, the people who are non-entities, like non-beings, he talks about Orlando Patterson and social death, by the way, uh, John Nordling in his great commentary from uh, CPH, um, uh, Concordia Publishing House on the book of Philemon has 130 pages on the historical uh, background of Philemon, and he deals with Orlando Patterson's book you know, over like 15. I think it's very, very, no it's very, very good. Yeah, he dark. talks about okay. he talks about what he agrees with about what Patterson's saying, but then he yeah. also talks about the critique of what Patterson says. Sure. And you know, it's true, slaves were non-persons uh, by right. law. Legal non-entities by law, right. and okay. basically the 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 father of the family, uh, he could if he wanted to wipe kill his slaves and not okay. face any consequences. Uh, very often, uh, right. given the particular circumstances in Roman society, it was a brutal place. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, husbands could kill their children, their wives, and not oh, face yeah. consequences too. So, yeah. it, very much you have hierarchy to the extreme in Roman society. And yeah, so I mean, but the thing is, yes, you do have to have, he said, you, they have, uh, the non-entities have to exist in order for communities to exist as communities. And so, again, this is the whole, you know, and then he gets into the aspect of violence and how violence is uh, just a part of life. And that's something that, of course, he'd like to overcome, but he's pessimistic. He's an Afro-pessimist. Um, he doesn't know how that hope 
could come, but he does hope that it will come. So, but, but my point is just that hierarchy needs to exist. And after you overthrow the whole structure, hierarchy is still going to exist, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, so everything, so I mean, so there's this reality um, that, yes, there are non-permanent hierarchies. So like, for example, Paul tells you, uh, in the Apostle Paul says, you know, if you can get your freedom, do it, right? And then he seems in the book of Philemon to be urging Philemon to... Uh, maybe even free Onesimus. We, you know, we're, maybe we can't be 100% sure, but certainly treating Onesimus like a brother and, you know, as someone who he values and loves. And then, of course, we look at all of Paul's writings about masters and slaves, which strike us as so wrong today. Um, yeah. But on the other hand, it's like, look, I mean, if you actually did have a master like that, who really did seem to have your best interests in mind, I mean, man, that might even be better. That might even be a better situation uh, than having an employer who doesn't treat you very well. And so Paul, some have argued in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is saying, you know, uh, don't let yourselves become slaves to men. In, in many cases in Roman society, in spite of all this violence, in spite of all the bad things that were going on, it was often to your economic advantage. And it was often not, and people would sell themselves into slavery. Right, you know, right. uh, you know, maybe they had debt or whatever, but in some circumstances, um, you know, people would want to become slaves <laughs> of yep. certain of certain people. It kind of reminds me of in the uh, the book of Isaiah when the world is absolutely falling apart, right, and everything is horrible, and people are eating their children in the streets, and, and you know, and the women are are going to like the one strong man and just like, hey, make me your wife. Mm-hmm. So, so what, you know, yeah. we know human life can get absolutely horrible and yeah. Yeah. this is the fallen world. And our only hope is Jesus Christ to bring us through this, Matt. I just yeah. like, I listen to this and I'm like, man, you know what you're describing? It's not that it's all so wrong. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of truth in what he's saying, of course, but we know that the system that he's using to, um, it's not, I don't think the observations that he's making I don't think that they that they couldn't necessarily be made in some sense from another perspective. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you yeah. couldn't make those up. But the system that he's using, as you're going to point out, as you pointed out many times, is meant yeah. to undermine capitalism. But it's also meant to undermine to just topple all the structures, all the authorities. Sure. Right. OK. Yeah. 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 No. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, you're you're you're, you're right on right on target there. Um so again, going back to his, you know, the the dog, the cat dog idea. That's that's what he. That's the premise he's applying to, yeah. uh, to blackness. So in other words, I mean, even even the the definition of human. Uh, this this is his claim, is that how we define human is, uh, the 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 direct the the bedrock. I think he used these words: the bedrock, uh. Thing that we use to define human is the slave, the black slave yeah. in particular. So, and this is this is really the root, as, as near as I can tell, of the Afro-pessimism, is that without the black, uh, without blackness, uh, we cannot have humanness. We cannot have, you know, all, so this is where, this is, if you wonder what people are talking about, and a lot of times they, they aren't this deep into it, but when they talk about structural, when they talk about uh, uh, a systemic or structural or institutional racism, 
this is what they're driving at is that uh that that western culture western political philosophy western theology whatever else there is in the west um the only reason we can define those things is because uh of of blackness uh the the blackness of the you know the abuse of slaves uh the the the, the persona non grata of slaves etc cetera, etc cetera. that's the only way we can define these things and so therefore um, so long as we're going to hold to some monicum of uh, these values, we have to have uh, the blackness that, that Wilderson is, is putting forth there. We have to have that. Ha- that's the only way we can define it. Yeah, go ahead. So my question to you is, so do you think he's like, he's kind of, it seems like he's basically saying that the slavery that the ancient world knew, that that's mm-hmm. more or less, that's very similar to, he's like making that almost equal with blackness. So when he talks about blackness, he's not necessarily talking about um, black skin, right? He He's talking right. about kind of being a non-person, a non-entity, somebody who must exist and be a tool uh, for others so that they can have a flourishing society like they want to. Um, or maybe even uh, in some sense uh, to kind of release tension or repression or, or you know, th- that kind of yeah, stuff, yeah, yeah. right? No, you, yeah, what, you, what, so what, what, you're, yeah, what you're talking about there is critically important uh, because blackness at at its foundational level is is not a, a – you, you will when you, when you hear people talk about black bodies, when they start bringing that piece in, sometimes they will, sometimes they will, but a lot of times they'll – that is for a very specific purpose, because uh, according to this philosophy, take it, Clarence Thomas is not black. Clarence Thomas is white, because blackness is not uh, it has has not so much to do with your skin color as it does with your with your ideology and your your worldview. Okay, now what Wilderson I think would say also is that what has defined you know, the, the, the philosophy or the ideology of blackness has been black bodies. And, and I, would, I would agree with that. I would say, yes, uh, that people with black bodies have been the most, you know, uh, physically abused, uh, you know, on down the line. Um, you know, people in, uh, in human history, I, I think we can, that, that's, that, you know, that's beyond dispute. Uh, so, so the two do, do go together. However, at, at the end of the day, you, you always have to remember that anytime we define something, it's always an abstraction. Okay, it's not when you say I'm black. Uh, that is not a, a remember. Remember what he started this out with. It, 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 you're using the, the, the signifier we use to define somebody with a with a brown uh, skin pigment is black. That's the signifier. He's saying that's not reality. What what reality is. It is rather these abstractions that we put around these concepts that we think we perceive with our eyes. And what really is the reality are these ideologies and processes. That's okay. the reality. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Okay, but you, I do, do want to say, like you said, that uh, I, you didn't think it was in question that, you know, black bodies had kind of uh, yeah. taken most of the violence through human history. Now, I think Wil- well, Wil- Wilderson's argument – um, in particular, is that this has been happening basically since the time of Muhammad, 
right? Six, yeah. he, he talks about 625 or, you know, 625. I think he's talking about the Muslim conquest. Yeah, he quoted and, 1,300 and, years. Okay, so that, yeah, yeah, 1,300 right years. Yeah. So he's, yeah. Not, he's not even saying, uh, he's not saying it's been like throughout human history. And I have done some reading. I did some reading about like racism and slavery uh, throughout in the ancient world. And I mean, yeah. it doesn't seem like, it doesn't seem like there was this identification with slavery and black bodies necessarily in the ancient yeah. world. I mean, if anything, there there were, uh, I think it was the Syrians in the ancient world who took the brunt, uh, supposedly, in the most modern scholarship, they're talking about like people from modern day Syria were kind of like the ones who took the brunt of the, sla- of the hard slavery um, in the ancient world. Um, right. And so, and there was, there's all this talk about Eth- the Ethiopian, you know, uh, the yeah. Ethiopian in the ancient world. Um, so, and that was kind of like a signifier, I guess, for, for black. So, cause yeah. you know, Wilderson is going to talk about how uh, kind of the idea of black uh, right. is kind of created. Right. And he says yeah. that it doesn't, it doesn't have like a Eden period. It doesn't have this period where it ever had a, like a glory period, which it fell from, and then it can be redeemed from. It was just created um, in um, in hardship. All right, yeah. and so I mean that, and I do think that's interesting. I do think there's a strong case to be made, especially like with American slavery too, about how people did create the category of black, um, specifically for you know, reasons where they just, they wanted to have control, economic control over their slaves, right? I, I Sure. I'm very, I'm pretty sympathetic to that argument and I've seen some right. strong cases for it, but that doesn't negate the fact that critical theory is not the answer and Marxism is not the answer to these questions. I mean, it's basically, I mean, unless you, unless you want to bathe the world in blood. Right, right, right. Well, that's, and again, that's where I would say that Again, remember the binary opposites. So Mar- Marcuse, right, is really particularly famous for the binary opposites. Um, what again? That's that's what I I am convinced, and he doesn't come right out and say it, but that's what I'm convinced that Wilderson is setting up here. You've got the binary opposites. You've got the humans, and you've got the slaves. And so what what's got what's got to happen? Well, that's that hierarchical relationship has to be subverted. That's the first step. So whatever that looks like. So so the the humans, you know, they they've got to be uh, subverted by uh, the blacks, by blackness, shall we say? Okay. Yeah. Um, that that's that's the first step that's got to happen. That's what I believe he's setting up here. Now he doesn't go, he goes there a little bit, but it's not obvious. But it. Well, but it in the other yeah. video, in the other video that I watched uh, from the uh, Philadelphia Free Library, he talks yeah. about how you know the Anglo, the English, uh, the Anglo-American uh, education pedagogy, you know that's the problem. Doesn't create good thinkers, and it also doesn't create good revolutionaries. Right. Yeah. That's what he said. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, that but that's that's what I, that's what I'm seeing here is that's that's the binary he's setting up. Uh, and so, and again, he, he kind of, you know, again, we're talking about 1300 years. So I've gone, okay, past 1300 years. Yeah. I think, you know, probably Africans have been the, the, the primary chattel in the, uh, in the slave trade. Okay, fine. Um, you know, and, and if you read, um, uh, souls, uh, 
black rednecks and white. Ah, I can't remember the name. Yeah, Thomas Sowell's book Soul. on. Yeah, his 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 history of slavery. You'll you'll see that. I mean, <laughs> uh, slavery slavery was was the yeah that was just normal. That was pretty oh, much yeah. the yeah that was until and not, and not only was it normal. But yeah. really, until until Christian truth kind of gets deep into somebody, even right. for Christians, not only yeah. is slavery normal, but it's something that the 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 one who who like gets the slaves or whatever, or who conquers the people, that person's a hero. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know, and like, and I know, and I know, Scripture says that man stealing and you know kidnapping, man stealing, not a good thing, right? Uh, yeah. You know, that's that's punishable by death in the Old Testament. But I'm just saying, human nature is such that, generally speaking, that's kind of the direction that we go. You know, we follow oh, yeah. the we follow the glorious victor. That's what professional yeah. wrestling is all about. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. So, um, yeah, and speak and speaking of scripture, I mean, if you if you understand world history and you understand um, ancient near near Eastern practices, um, the the mandates of Holy Scripture were, I mean, it's so benevolent. So revolutionary. Oh, totally. I mean, totally. just, I mean, the I mean, as idea. Much, as much as I struggle with scripture sometimes, I'm just like, yeah. man, it's like, it's not only you can see the love of God through Jesus Christ, you know, dying yeah. on a cross for our sins, but you can see it in his law too. Even yeah. though, even those laws that strike us as wrong today, it's like, well, we don't necessarily know the horrors of the ancient world either. No, we don't. Well, and yeah, that's the whole idea, like, you know, Exodus, you know, Exodus 21, where the Lord specifically lays out to Moses how to treat a slave. That is unheard of in the ancient totally. Near East. Like, totally. That, I mean, and, and, and a, na- a nation that would write laws to tell you that you have to treat a slave a certain way, what kind of idiots are you? Right. When you have slaves, you treat them however you want. You that's, do what you, you know, want with them. Exactly, 100%. So and you're glorified anyway, for it. Right. Right. So, yeah. So at any rate, um, what Wilderson is setting up here. It, it, and again, I mean, I, I was just this was just breath. I mean, talk about breathtaking. I was. I mean, quite literally, just like just took the breath out of me to, you know, it, and it always does when I hear, you know, genuine critical theorists who will, you know, state the you know, have the courage of their convictions and state what they believe. Um, and that's exactly what what he's stating here is is that our entire Western culture is built upon uh, the blackness he's describing, yeah. and so and so the Afro pessimistic viewpoint, as near as I can tell, is we don't without without blackness being defined this way, we don't have Western culture. So that there's your systemic racism. You're right. You're right. That's what he's saying. Yep. So anyway, all right, let's see if we can move on a little bit with this. Yep. Get down the line here. Okay. So is there no understanding of human prior to that discovery? So philosophy that predates um, history that predates that time is somehow qualitatively different? Well, I would use, I'm not a historian, so I'm, I'm now, uh, you know, walking on a Minnesota lake in April, <laughs> hoping it's still frozen. But um, I will say this. Um, 
When I say human, I mean it loosely. And by that, I mean that whenever people meet, they give each other a kind of existential, um, what, what Frantz Fanon calls ontological resistance in the eyes of the other. I'll repeat that. Ontological resistance in the eyes of the other. Um, Sartre might say, I meet a person on the street, that person, you know, whether we're going to love each other or kill each other. In the exchange, that person gives me something, which is uh, the three points, which I, I can remember them, a perspective, the person gives me the capacity, in their mind, the capacity to have a perspective, uh, the capacity to um, see myself being seen by someone with perspective, and the capacity mm -hmm. to give someone else the capacity for perspective. What I mean by perspective? I mean, I say to, to you, I don't say, because that's a word of volition, but my unconscious grants the encounter grants you um, capacities, the capacity to transform endless duration into time, meaning events, the capacity to transform limitless space into place, like place names. So even if I am going to massacre you and try to wipe you out, in that process, I have given you these kinds of, of, of qualities of beingness which allow you to which which bring about ontological resistance between you and me in other words if i am the the white settler and i'm going to kill you from 18 million down to by the 1900s it was 170,000 native people um in the process i'm going to call you a people I'm going to, uh, part of the conquest, part of the ontological resistance is in the negotiations and the genocide through which I change uh, what you call Ohlone land into California. This is, there's war and death, pestilence and genocide, but there's also a relay of reciprocity going on. And what I would argue is that it is precisely that relay of, of reciprocity and I'm not the first to argue this. Sidia Hartman in Scenes of Subjection, David Marriott in On Black Men, uh, that, that relay of reciprocity, that black people cannot infuse the unconscious of the other with ontological resistance. That would be, you know, it would take me 10 weeks to prove that in a seminar. We have to get into psychoanalysis, but that's the bedrock claim that um, the preconscious mind says something when it sees a black person. Oh, that's a person I don't see. I judge, I judge people by the content of their, their, their character, not the color of their skin, you know. That's the preconscious mind. The unconscious mind sees the socially dead being. And it is that sight which produces the bedrock foundation for existing. So if you were on the, the Minnesota thin ice, I'm on even thinner ice here. I actually uh, find that part of the argument really clear. And my, my, my one remaining question is whether or not prior to... Uh, by the way, there's your uh, unconscious bias idea right, right there coming out, uh, where, where 
he's saying cognitively, you know, I see a black man and, you know, I don't, I don't judge you. Yeah, I see another black truck driver and I don't say, oh, well, he's black. He must be a terrible truck driver. I wait and see what kind of a truck driver he is. I judge him on the content of his character. Well, and what, what Wilderson's saying is, no, you don't. You are you are defining subconsciously. You're defining him as, you know, uh, the, the the way you have to define him. The way you must define that person in the black body is in this certain way because that's the only thing that gives your life meaning, right? And like you said, it would take him ten weeks in a seminar to prove prove that psych, uh, psychologically, but. He, he thinks he could do it. That's the claim he's making. Yeah, go ahead. Right. So he and he's talking here about this idea of like are the West's or America's collective unconscious, right? And yep. I think he would say that the collective unconscious affects us all, and it has evolved in a way to be what it is right now today, such that I suppose you know when a when a young white boy sees a young black boy. Um, you know, he might be trained to pre-consciously think, judge a person by the content of their character or not. But unconsciously, unconsciously, there's already a problem there. It, it, yeah. I, I don't know exactly what Wilderson is saying there. But I mean, because and I know they've done research on whether or not babies are racist and all this stuff, which I think is is ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I mean, I guess it makes sense to me that, you know, babies might find the other babies who don't look quite like their parents to be very interesting or even, you know, maybe they keep their distance. I don't know. I mean, okay. Uh, that's one of the issues that we're dealing with uh, in, right. in our fallen world. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's well, something and that, because I mean, the sociologists will talk about, again, I brought this up so many times. They, they talk about, um, in-group preference. They talk yep. about yep. Self, the, our tendency to self-segregate, our tendency to be with people who look like us and talk like yep. us and think, yeah. You know. So, but I mean, it seems like the direction that Wilderson's going, I mean, it's it's kind of like this determined um, idea that, you know, we, we, we can't be together. Politically, uh, politically at this point, I don't know if it's, just how intrinsic it is to human nature with this conflict between the races or how much it's just something that's evolved and contingent. But for him, we just cannot be together. And you get the idea that there needs to be an absolute separation, which, by the way, going back to our friend Bradley Mason, um, mm -hmm. you know, he's written five articles now for this uh, online web magazine. Uh, I think, uh, black magazine, African-American Christian magazine called The Front Porch. And then okay. I think in part in part four or part five, I mean, he basically is saying something like, well, you know, in America, we had this situation where it was just all about power because the powers that be decided that the white supremacists needed to be marginalized and the black and the um, and like the black power people needed to be marginalized. And, you know, and that they couldn't really express like their true feelings. And I'm just kind of thinking like, well, OK, <laughs> I mean, politically speaking, it makes yeah. sense that you would maybe want to try to, you know, to, to not necessarily put all your eggs in the baskets of talking to those supremacist groups or, you know, the people mm -hmm. on the extremes. I mean, like if you really did want to live together, 
if you really did yeah. want to live together, I mean, you'd probably want to talk to the people who wanted to do that. Uh, right. But it seems to me the direction that Wilderton's going, and even Mason, too, is just like, mm-hmm. you know, we, we cannot live. There's no way. There's no way we can live together. We need right. to basically be completely separate, which is you're kind of back to segregation again, except now it's all self-segregation on both sides. Right. Well, yeah, I, I, maybe it's uh, – well, and, and that's the thing that got Malcolm in trouble was he – he proposed, you know, a, you know, a black, you know, black nationalism. Right. That's black nationalism is one thing where we say, okay, we, we tried this. We tried to figure out, you know, you guys enslaved us. Now you're trying to incorporate us into your culture. It's not working. Let's just give up on it. Let's just, we'll have our black nation. You guys have your white nation and let's figure out how to do that. You know, that seems somewhat peaceful in comparison to what I think Wilderson is really after here, which is to say that, um, no, that's not how this is going to work. The way, again, the way all this has really got to go down, since he set up these binary opposites, the way this has really got to go down is is the blackness has has got to dominate the whiteness. So we're going to live together, but it's our turn to dominate you, just to put it in simple terms. So that, and and I think, you know, if, if you wanted to dominate uh you know, white people or, or whiteness or whatever, uh, the, the way to do it would be, you know, a sort of Marxist approach. And it's, I mean, it's pretty obvious from from his uh, from his comments here. He's a Marxist. He's against capitalism. Uh, and that, that would be the way to do it would be would be a top down. OK, you white people have been dominating for the past, you know, you put it 1300 years. Um, now it's our turn to dominate you for about, you know, 12, 1300 years. And then after that, we'll see how it goes. Go ahead. Yeah, interesting. So another comment that he made. I'm sorry I keep bringing up the other interview, but it was just much more enlightening for me than this one. This one was helpful, okay. but that other sure. one was much more at a lower level, I think. I'll, de- um, I'll definitely check it out, yeah. Yeah, uh, but no, he talked in there about like how a lot of people who are into critical race theory, they don't necessarily have – he thought that they're kind of naive you know, because they just don't necessarily sure. have the background in critical theory, and then mm-hmm. they don't have the background in Marxism. So they can't right. really understand the critical race theory very well, or the critical race theorists are just kind of missing the boat on a lot of stuff. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, he's definitely yeah. um, more into the Marxism or at least uh, the cult- the kind of cultural Marxism, the kind of critical theory that really, really highly respects the uh, economic Marxism. Yeah, 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 for sure. So, all right, let me uh... – I'm going to fast forward this a bit and see if I can get to some stuff toward the end that I thought was interesting. And uh, I'm just going to jump and see how it goes. Uh, Afro-pessimism, we have described it to you, uh, describes the totality of every black person's life. I mean, there are black billionaires and there are black starving people. Uh, There are black trans people and there are black hetero people. But I would say that all those differences are important and inessential. What I'm suggesting is that that the three elements of social death are the truth, the truth of black existence, not the totality. Just as I would say that in psychoanalytic feminism, um, a a properly edified girl slash woman is the truth of Oedipal triangulation 
not the totality of how a girl, child, or a woman lives their lives. And just like I would say that exploitation is the truth of capitalist domination, but definitely not the totality of how someone lives their lives under capitalist domination. So the truth, so what do I mean by truth? What I mean by truth is if you were to undo this one little widget, would the world come apart? And so the desire, the, the theoretical desire for that project is very different from the theoretical desire of projects of hybridity. Even projects of hybridity that don't announce themselves as being so are really fundamentally asking themselves a question, how do I, as a non-conforming visual person or non-conforming sexualized person, live in this society? That's not a question you can ask through Afro-pessimism. The only question you can ask through Afro-pessimism is, what is at the core that holds it together that if you undid it, you'd have the end of the world. Very different desires motivating a different strain of questions. Okay, so there, there you go. So what, what is the, the end of the world, right? <laughs> that's, that's, how he, that's, that's the term he used, very, very interesting phraseology there. Uh, but he is asking a completely different question. What, what thread do we need to pull up? So in other words, he talks about how, okay, you've got, you've got, Females, you know, we got feminism, and what you know, what's what's their end goal? Uh, is it it's you know, is it to, is it to live in the in the world as it is? Uh, you've got the sexual revolution, transgenderism. He cites specifically what you know, what are they trying to just live in the world? And what he's saying is that at, what Af, what Afro pessimism claims is that we're not trying to live in the world; we're trying to end it. That's that's the, the, the thing he's after. And you're going to hear him go on here, I think, and talk about how if we start pulling on the thread of the of his claim that fundamentally blackness is defined against humanness. Again, we've got this, this these binary opposites. We start pulling on that thread. That's what's going to end the world. And that's what we're shooting for. Are, are you that's that's what again again made me almost drive off the road i'm like oh okay well at least he's, he's at least he's being honest um he he is shooting for a you know a, a, a complete societal change when he talks about the end of the world that's you know i, I think that's the, the that phraseology is really he's saying that that his claim here with afro pessimism is you know it's it's not it's not the sexual revolution it's not the feminist movement but it in fact is uh, the 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 blackness, the Afro pessimism, that's going to be the thread. That if we start pulling on that, that's what's going to really redefine everything and um, bring about whatever it is he's hoping to bring about. Which again, in Marxist theory, is is the utopia. Okay, well, man, and you, <laughs> you might be you might be right on that too, because one of the interesting things about this interview, as we continue, and I don't know if we'll get a chance to hear it or not. But she talks to him about, like, hope. And I think he says something like, well, if I gave the impression of hope, I, I, I really wish I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> and, and, yeah. he talks, and he talks about, like, why he says that. He says because he's not religious. Um, so he does see religion. He does see God as, I guess, in 
I mean, Mark said the opiate of the people and this whole idea of this false consciousness, right, that people yeah. embrace as their hope. But in reality, it's not it's not really a true hope. Right. So yeah. I think that's kind of uh, that was an interesting answer when she asked him, it, you know, if it, it kind of had some hope. And he's like, well, I didn't really want to give any hope. I don't yeah, want to yeah. give any hope and because I'm not religious. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, well, I was, so I was like, wow, where's he, you know, what exactly does he mean by that? But I think that what you just said kind of maybe gives us a clue as to where his hope really lies and his hope really lies in, in revolution. And I guess, I don't know, Matthew, I don't know if he is saying that, that, that he wants violent revolution. Um, it, he might very well be saying that, you know, it's hard to listen to a guy like this who, again, very polite, very uh, civil, uh, very seemingly aware, uh, socially, uh, very sensitive guy. You know, you listen to him. Um, to just to, to think about to just to think about people as being you know violent revolutionaries and stuff is is a difficult thing but but I guess we know we know what happened in the 20th century right we know uh, the kinds of I guess good people you know the people we would have thought were our good neighbors we we know what what can happen when these ideologies uh, start to take over and start to become and start to become their religion and start to and the utopian fever dreams began and i mean again this i think i brought this up in our last conversation but i was struck by the fact that um you know in in one of the most momentous centuries of our of world history uh, the 16th century with the reformation and all the things that happened there with luther um uh, bringing the scriptures to the fore, and but that was that was a time like right around uh, Luther's time was was a time when everybody everybody was discussing what is a just society, what does it mean uh, to have a flourishing society, a good society, a righteous society, and there were all these books about utopia, and yeah. and, and how and how possible it was to have a better world. And I think people back then were a little bit, um, you know, they were more realistic. They weren't talking about revolutions so much, not everybody at least. But then, of course, we do have the stuff that happened in um, in Münzer and uh, the the Peasants' War in 1525. So, and, and yeah, so we know that revolutions have been uh, something that have happened throughout human history, too. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, you know, to talk about Marxism, it's not like it's, it's not like it's giving – it's something totally unique in that it uh, in that it deals with revolution because revolutions have always happened, but it certainly does provide this intellectual superstructure to overthrow creation, to overthrow hierarchy, to overthrow authority and, uh, and kind of to justify it, to to rationalize it. And, uh, and it, it is like, it's like another religion. It's not just the, it's just not the mob being, yeah, having their emotions ginned up about all the the grievances, uh, maybe some good grievances. I mean, some true, some things that really, you know, they they're right to be upset about, but mm-hmm. but to to overthrow people violently, um, yep. not a good thing. I mean, this is not this is, and this is where you know Christians. Uh, I mean, 
this is this is the difficult thing, right? The kingdom of God does not come by arms and force, but it yeah. comes by the yeast working slowly through the dough and it by the birds building nests in the trees and it comes through humble and simple means and and yeah. and Christians can't get caught up in this stuff. Right, right. Well, so <clears throat> so a couple things. Um three things I I think of in response to your, your very well formed comments there. One, uh, one we see we this is this is a really good example of cultural Marxism on display, because you notice Wilderson's comments throughout, where he talks about um, uh, the the class thing, the, the the whole notion of of Marx and the class struggle. That's that's not the key. That that can add to it. And again, he's he's saying here with with uh, feminism, the sexual revolution. Yeah, those things could add to uh, the revolution, but really, what's the fo- what, what's going to be the foundation? What's going again? His words: dest- What's going to destroy the world? Well, when we when we when we take Afro pessimism and flip it on its head, that's going to be the key. Now, these other again, he'll go on to say, if I recall correctly, we might hear a little bit of it. Uh, that the intersectionality thing, that's great, it's fine, all adds to it. But really, what's at the core of it is is the blackness. And he might be right about that. Now, um, you talk about violent revolution. Um, you know, the, the thing of it is, is, is that if if you are oppressed by an evil, oppressive regime, as you know, as in Wilderson's worldview is going on here, which is Western culture, Western political. If that's if you're oppressed by that, then, you know. If it takes violence to overthrow it, then that's what it takes, because that's just, you know, that's that's what we've got to do. Uh, you know, that's that's where again your cultural Marxists are probably going to disagree with your traditional Marxists. So you've got so you got a few things here, okay? So you've got your your traditional Marxists, which, which Marx really believed that 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 the working class um, that eventually that. That that would just that the the Marxist revolution, as it were, would just come about, you know, naturally. That that that's a, that would be the natural. He Marx theorized that the natural outcome of Western capitalism, particularly under uh, Western liberal, uh, uh, and I say liberal in the in the traditional sense, liberal democracy, the natural outcome of that would be what Marx predicted, which would be, you know. Uh, which would be communist, you know, Marxist communism. Then you've got uh, Marxist Leninists. So the the best way I can describe a Marxist Leninist is, um, oh, what's his face? I can't remember who said this, but never let a good crisis go to waste. That's that's Marxist Leninism. So in other words, hey, like right now in this election, the you know, if if you were a Marxist and you wanted to wanted to see a revolution occur, this would be a great time to do it. So you elect. Uh, a figurehead to, to the presidency who is backed up by somebody who believes in the cause. Um, you, you do things like stack the courts so so your policies can't be overturned. You, you essentially create a one-party system, um, and then you just and then you just do your thing. You execute your agenda. Um, that's Marxist-Leninism. That's that's taking advantage of an opportunity. That's what Lenin did essentially. Is he saw the weakness in the um, in, in the czarist structure of Russia, and he took he you know he he's an opportunist in other words, right? 
so that's that's another way to do it. Uh, um, I mean, because if you think about it, yeah, was was the revolution in Russia violent? It was, but not on a massive scale. Most of it was was a revolution of opportunity. So um, I think if you're going to see something like that happen here in the United States, that's that's kind of how it'll happen. It'll be violent to some degrees, but for the most part, it'll be an, an opportunist type of thing. Then then you've got, you know, the people on the on the other on the, you know, probably disagreeing with with Marx and Lenin saying, you know, if, if we've got to take up arms and do this thing, uh, we can do it. Now, I don't think that's where Wilderson is. I think he's more of a uh, Marxist-Leninist. He's he sees an opportunity. Yes, will there be violence? Of course, we'll you know we'll deal with the violence as it comes. But we've got to take advantage of this opportunity. Um, and so, and again, that's that's all founded on the opportunity is with is with the the race the race piece. That's where the real opportunity is. Mm. Uh, yeah. to bring about, quote, the end of the world, which he means, what what he means by that. So now let's get back to being Christians. A couple of reasons I'm a Christian is I know I can't save myself. I've tried that. It doesn't work. I need a savior. So, um, you know, so again, that's that's one of the big things I disagree, you know, with Jordan Peterson and the whole self-help, you know, the whole, that kind of thing. There's value in, in that in some, way, in some ways, but at the end of the day, who's, who's saving you? you? You're saving yourself. Right. That's one problem I have. The other the other reason I'm uh, I'm a Christian This is maybe maybe my pragmatism is showing a little bit too much here. But um, the other reason I'm a Christian is because um, men can't save themselves. Same reason I, I personally can't save myself. We can't save ourselves. We just have to hold on until God. God is going to bring about the utopia, not us. And the more we try to bring about the utopia, the more disaster, chaos, murder, and just complete disaster we bring on ourselves. And we've seen some pretty good examples of that when people have tried to bring about the utopia throughout, you know, throughout human history. Mao, you know, the, the usual sex, Mao, Lenin, uh, Stalin, Pol Pot, and, and so it goes. We, we, when we see men try to do that, it's just, it's just death and disaster and chaos and, you know, just terrifying horror. Yeah. Um, and so that's why I, th- the reason, uh, the reason I'm a conservative is because I'm just like, let's, let's set up a system where we can just hang on until Jesus comes back. That's all I'm looking for. I'm not looking for you to create a utopia. I'm not looking for you to make my life better. All I'm looking to do is, can we just hang on until Christ comes back? That's all I'm looking for. It, when it comes to political philosophy, that's why, you know, again, you, my cousin and I, uh, we've actually started a new podcast, but he's a he's a uh, he's a one party, you know, uh, socialist, basically. Thanks that if, you know, if the United States more uh, reflect, I don't maybe told you about this. If we more reflected, you know, the, the type of government that China has, we would be a better country. You're doing a you podcast know. with him. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you. Yeah, I'll send you the link. It's called. Yeah, it's called the Matt and Jeff Show. It's actually just a YouTube channel right now. But uh, but I'll, yeah, I'll send you the links to it. It's kind of uh, like Hannity and Combs for a new age. <laughs> a little bit, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Well, Matt. Well, let me let me just say something too. I appreciate sure. your uh, filling me in on a lot of this stuff because uh, you know when you asked me to talk about this after I sent the show to you, I'm just like, oh, good lord, I shouldn't be talking about <laughs> this stuff. But, but no, really, it's, it's not. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, it's been a great conversation, though, and I appreciate you uh, bringing some of your your insight and your knowledge to all of these issues. Now, I, the whole thing about Marxism, too, I mean, I just I do feel like it's really important to emphasize just like kind of the appeal, you know, the appeal that it really does have to so many people, because there is this sense in all of us, I think, where we do want to see. We want to see harmony. We want to see people who treat each other well, who give give one another their due, people who like live by the golden rule and like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I mean, in a capitalist system, (laughs) you can see how, um, you know, things sometimes go kind of awry. And uh, with that, with the competition that drives people. Um, maybe sometimes people who are owners of businesses, they don't feel like they can really treat their workers as well as as they should, you know. Sure. And that's the thing that really kind of uh, I, I struggle with because I know that people in general, we just kind of do long for uh, – I think there's a an echo of Eden in all of us. Sure. And, that's a, yeah, and the absolutely. scriptures even talk about eternity in our hearts. And we look at the way the early church did treat each other, where they people were kind of willingly just giving a lot of their possessions. And uh, mm-hmm. and we know that the church emphasized taking care of the poor. And so this is a real, I mean, I think this is a real struggle here um, for us as American Christians to kind of wrestle with all of this stuff and to point out that Marx, at least Marx, when he was talking about the rich and the poor, I mean, it's not like the Bible doesn't ever talk in those categories either. I mean, right. it does kind of divide people up into, you know, let's just say it, the haves and the haves nots. And yep. I, I think it really does. Uh, now, I think oftentimes the poor in Scripture, um, when it talks about the poor, uh, kind of the physically poor and the spiritually poor kind of get merged together. You know, sure. like uh, in Matthew, he does talk about the poor in spirit. And in Luke, it talks about on the Sermon on the Plain, he talks about the poor. And so, I mean, it is difficult. Um, but but ideally, you know, who would be most prepared for the gospel? I mean, it would be probably people who are at the end of their ropes, right? I mean, everybody kind of is prepared for the gospel um, at, at the point of death, or and I shouldn't say everybody is, but death is kind of that universal leveler where we kind of will maybe have that opportunity to come to grips with the fact that we're dying because of our sin Mm. and we need a savior because death was not in the cards from the beginning and death is not as natural as normal as death is now. That wasn't part of it. And so, I mean, you've got that, but then you've also got uh, the just kind of the, what did Luther call it? He called it the veil of tears, which yes. maybe wasn't the best. I mean, I think he's kind of borrowing secular language there when he said that. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I, I think that as Christians, I think that there's probably it's very easy for me to see how people can be so tempted to Marxism or, or just like socialism. I just want to be a Christian socialist. And I'm yeah. thinking to myself, well, don't even do that. Be a Christian Democrat <laughs> right. or, or something. Yeah. You know, don't, don't call yourself a Christian socialist right. because socialism so easily seems to merge right into um, – it goes right back into the Marxism. And the Marxism is yeah. so tempting 
because of the things that it emphasizes that A, are kind of in the Bible, and B, are things that we as Christians probably have fallen down on in a lot of ways. But at the same time, I'm not going to go all Tim Keller either. Uh, Tim Keller kind of seems to make these, like the sexual issues and the justice issues uh, with the the poverty issues. He's like saying like, well, they're kind of, you know, they're both areas where Christians have failed. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. But on the other hand, it's like, you know, with the sexual issues, you kind of got a lot of binary yes or no stuff going on there. Whereas with the, with the poverty issues and greed, this is, this becomes more difficult. It becomes more difficult to think like, what is, you know, let's just say it, what's equitable, what's fair, what's just, 